Please be seated and join me in prayer once again. Father, we are so thankful for giving us your holy, inspired, all-sufficient, soul-satisfying, life-giving word. We pray that you would send your spirit now to help us understand and apply the truths of this text. And Lord, help us to worship you as a result of this text. And we pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. During World War II, Adolf Hitler threatened to subjugate every corner of Europe. But standing in his way was Winston Churchill, the eccentric prime minister of Great Britain. Long before he became prime minister in 1940, Churchill warned all of Europe that Hitler was going to be a serious threat in the future, but everyone ignored Winston Churchill. They ignored his warning including Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain. Chamberlain refused to take a stand against Hitler, even though Hitler was gaining more and more ground in Europe. By mid-1940, most of Europe was under Hitler's thumb. But then something happened that changed the course of history. Winston Churchill finally became Prime Minister of Great Britain. He had waited his whole life. At this point, he was 65 years old, Most folks thought he was too old to lead this nation to victory, but he was about to enter into his finest hour of leadership. When he became prime minister, he gave a speech and he uttered these famous words. You ask, what is our policy? I can say it is to wage war by sea, land, and air, with all our might and with all the strength that God can give us to wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark, lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word, victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be, for without victory there is no survival. Now, with those words, I feel like going and fighting someone. I don't know who. (laughs) Churchill was a great orator, and he was a great leader. And World War II proved to be his finest hour, the hour that he would lead Europe to victory over Hitler and all of his Nazi hordes. Now, there was a much more important leader that lived 2,000 years earlier, and we're about to enter into his finest hour the hour that he was made for, the hour that he came to earth for. And of course, I'm referring to Jesus. And John 12, 26 to 37, uh, describes the beginning of Christ's finest hour. His death on the cross specifically was his finest hour. Listen to the words of John 12, 23, just a few verses back. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verse 27, he says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. The cross of Christ was Jesus Christ's finest hour, the hour that he was made for, the hour that he would conquer Satan and all of his minions. Christ's hour, his finest hour, 
is also our finest hour, because if we're Christians, Christ's finest hour means that someday you and I will be ushered into the new creation in glorified resurrection, sinless bodies. Now, why exactly was the cross Christ's finest hour? To answer that question, I want to pursue a couple of subjects this morning. First is the anticipation of the cross. Again, the cross is Christ's finest hour. First point is the anticipation of the cross. What was Christ anticipating on the cross during his finest hour? He was anticipating severe trouble. Look with me at verse 27. Again, he says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Christ has just entered Jerusalem on a donkey. He arrives as a humble king to serve, and now he's heading towards the cross, and he says that his soul is troubled. Now, this word troubled is a strong word and is often translated as stirred up or horrified or agitated or revulsed. Why was Christ so troubled? Christ was anticipating the horrors of the cross, now more than ever. But what specifically was he anticipating that caused so much anguish of soul or deep trouble? Was it the trouble of the physical torment of the cross? Was it a bruised and lacerated and bloody back rubbing up and down against a wooden beam? Was it the large nails that would be driven through his hands and his feet? Was it the agony of constantly pulling himself up on the cross to catch his breath? Or maybe the thought of dying slowly of suffocation as flies buzzed around his head. Was that what caused such incredible agony of soul for Jesus? Possibly, but more than likely, that was not the primary cause of his soul's trouble. Well, then what was it? Was it the fact that he was about to take upon his shoulders the guilt of literally billions of people? The guilt and shame of the pedophile, the rapist, the murderer, the porn creator, the thief, the proud, the arrogant, the sexually immoral, the adulterer, the murderer, the crime boss, the warlord sins of you and me? Was that what was causing him so much agony and trouble of soul, taking that guilt upon his shoulders? Possibly. But I think the thing that caused the greatest amount of distress by far was the fact that when he was on the cross, his own father, whom he had known from all eternity, was about to forsake him, abandon him. For the first time ever in that relationship, there would be a rupture. Because on the cross, the father turned away from his own son. Because on the cross, the son had the guilt of billions of people on his shoulders. As a, as a result, on the cross, Jesus cries out in a loud voice, Matthew 27, 46, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? R.C. Sproul writes, 
This cry represents the most agonizing protest ever uttered on this planet. It bursts forth in a moment of unparalleled pain. It is the scream of the damned for us. On the cross, Jesus Christ was damned for us. The innocent for the guilty. As a result, he was abandoned by his own father. And anticipating this caused his soul severe trouble, as you can imagine. As a result, he prays. Look with me again at John 12, 27 to 28. I'm going to read here from the NIV. I think the NIV captures the meaning of this text a little better than the ESV. Verse 27, Jesus says, Now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Was Christ trying to back out of the cross, avoid the suffering, avoid the pain? No, he was just expressing his humanity. Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man, two distinct natures in one person. And the thought of all that pain and suffering and abandonment troubled his soul. He was fully human, yet he never sinned. This was not a sinful anxiety, but it was an expression of his true humanity. So he prays. Again, verse 27 and then 28. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Now when you and I experience significant trials, when we anticipate severe trouble, we often pray, God, help me avoid this significant trial or trouble in my near future. That's not how Christ prays. Rather, he prays, astonishingly, Father, I pray that you would be glorified in the midst of this trial. Yes, it's okay to, to pray for deliverance from trials. We should pray that. But we should also pray like Jesus. Father, help me to honor you, to glorify you in the midst of severe trouble and trial. Is that how we pray? That's how Jesus prayed. The man, Christ Jesus, prayed that way. That he would glorify the Father in the midst of severe trauma, anticipating severe trouble. Which raises, I think, an obvious question. How many of you are anticipating severe trouble? Maybe financial trouble? Maybe the loss of a job? A difficult relationship? A hard medical diagnosis? Political uncertainty? A difficult boss? A difficult child? A difficult work environment? Crippling depression? Severe marital conflict? When we are anticipating trouble, like Jesus was in this moment, we must remember that Jesus was fully human. And there is profound mystery here. Jesus Christ existed as two distinct natures in one person. 
He was fully divine and he was fully human. In his divine nature, he knew all things and he was omnipresent. In his human nature, he did not know all things and he was localized. But here's the good news. Because Jesus Christ was fully human, he can sympathize with you and I in our severe trials, anticipating trouble. He knows what it's like to anticipate severe trial and trauma and trouble. So if you're in that boat right now, go to Jesus. He knows what it's like. But Dave, my problem is significant. Were you, are you about to go bear the sins of the world on your shoulders and absorb the wrath of Almighty God? No. Jesus Christ knows trouble. And he knows how to help those who cry out to him for grace and strength and mercy. Furthermore, are we following his example of praying to God our Father, Father, help me to glorify you in the midst of this trial. Help my attitude, my actions, my words honor you and glorify you in the midst of severe trial. Furthermore, since Jesus Christ endured severe anguish and trouble for you on the cross, you and I know that he loves us with an extravagant love. If he loves us that much, surely he will help us when we are anticipating significant trial or trauma. He knows about our problems. He cares about our problems. And Romans 8 tells us, if God the Father has given us his son, what good thing will he withhold from us? Answer, nothing. If there's something good you need in the midst of your trial, God the Father will give it to you because he gave you his son. What else can he give you to prove that he loves you? Not only did Christ anticipate the pain of the cross, Christ also anticipated the achievement of the cross, which brings us to the second point. The cross is Christ's finest hour. First, the anticipation of the cross. Second, the achievement of the cross. What did the cross achieve? Many, many things. This text highlights at least two of those things. What did it achieve? The cross achieved for you and I a mighty victory. Look with me at verse 31 and 33. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, Jesus says, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. In light of verse 33, the ruler of this world, Satan, will be cast out through the cross work of Christ. What does that mean exactly? Theologians call this uh, the Christus Victor atonement, or motif of the atonement. Christ died for us on the cross, winning a mighty victory. What does that mean exactly? Well, a few other texts in the New Testament shed some helpful light on this idea of Christ dying, uh, gaining victory for us. For instance, Colossians 2, 14 and 15, the Apostle Paul says this, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he, that is Christ, set aside, nailing it to the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So this text says that Jesus somehow on the cross disarmed the rulers and authorities. Hebrews 2, one of my favorite texts, 
14 to 15. This is a fantastic funeral text. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, that is Jesus Christ, himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Somehow on the cross, Jesus Christ's death destroys Satan's power of death. 1 John 3, 8. John writes, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. What do we make of these verses that seem to indicate that on the cross, Jesus Christ won a mighty victory for us over Satan? Well, a few things to consider. When Christ died on the cross in our place, he destroyed Satan's ability to accuse us. We read that he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He destroyed the work of the devil. What, what does it mean exactly that Jesus Christ has disarmed the rulers and authorities? Because Jesus Christ died on the cross in our place, the guilt of all of our sins can be removed, which means that Satan can no longer accuse us. The main power he has over you and I is to convince us that we're sinners, dirty, rotten, filthy, and that God does not love us. But if Jesus Christ died on the cross in our place, then there is absolutely nothing to fear from Satan because the guilt of all of our sins has been removed. And when I say all, I mean all. Every sin you will ever commit in thought, word, and deed was punished in Jesus Christ on the cross, which means that there is zero wrath remaining for you, which also means that you are no longer guilty of anything. Anything. So when Satan comes to you and says, you dirty, rotten sinner. You've sinned that way eight times this week. 15 times this month, maybe a thousand times in your life. And you call yourself a Christian. You think God loves you? You're a dirty, rotten, guilty sinner full of shame. When that happens, say, oh no, Satan. Jesus Christ suffered and died in my place. And right now he sees me as his perfect, stainless, sinless, shameless child. And there is nothing you can do to convince me otherwise. That's what it means that Jesus Christ has cast out Satan, has destroyed the work of the devil. Furthermore, when Christ died on the cross in our place, he dealt Satan a mortal blow. Again, these texts say Satan has been cast out, that Christ might destroy the one who has the power of death. He came to destroy the work of the devil. How? Think of the cross as a giant spear. When Jesus Christ suffered and died on the cross in our place, this giant spear was plunged into Satan's chest, dealing him a mortal wound. Another satanic blood splurting everywhere. Satan knows his days are numbered. Satan knows that his doom is sure. As a result, he is, flashing, he is thrashing around violently, 
The great dragon is moving his tail around, whipping everything in its path, trying to, to wreak maximum havoc before he finally is vanquished. When Christ returns, he will vanquish Satan once and for all. Revelation 20.10 says this, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The cross of Christ is the basis or the grounds for that final defeat of Satan. When Christ came the first time, he dealt Satan a mortal wound. His doom is sure. One scholar writes this, Satan's defeat has already been secured, and the clock is ticking on his ultimate demise. His present flurry of fury is actually a sign that he knows his time is short. In the meantime, Satan has no power over you if you're a Christian. His doom is sure. The date was June 6th, 1944, after crossing the choppy English Channel under overcast skies, the first wave of infantry jumped into the water and waded onto the French shore. And they ran up the sandy beach as bullets zipped by their heads. Thousands of men died that day, but the Allied forces were victorious. This day is known as D-Day, a decisive moment in World War II. As a result of the victory at D-Day, the Allied forces were able to march across Europe and put out fires everywhere and win battles against the Axis powers. Now, although this was the main turning point in the war, there still were lots of battles that raged for the next eight, nine, ten months. The Germans finally surrendered to the Allied forces on May 8th. And the free world celebrates this day as VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. After five years, eight months, and seven days, the European phase of World War II was over. VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, was the result of D-Day. D-Day came about a year earlier. But because of what happened at D-Day, VE Day was ensured. It was guaranteed because the victory at Normandy was so decisive. As Christians, we live in between D-Day and VE Day. D-Day is when Christ came the first time, suffered and died on the cross, and conquered Satan decisively. Because of that victory on Calvary, D-Day, VE Day is ensured. VE Day is when Christ comes back a second time. And we know, because of what happened at Calvary, there will be a decisive victory in the future. We live in between. So yes, there are still battles raging. There are still some mop-up jobs. People are still dying. But we know that VE Day is coming. D-Day, Calvary, secured, ensured VE Day. Because the cross achieved a mighty victory, you and I don't have to fear the devil. And if you've, been, if you've been a Christian for a while, you've probably been exposed to some form of spiritual warfare. And if you have, you know it's sometimes a little frightening. As I've mentioned many times before in here, I have literally been involved in, I don't know, 
five, six, seven, eight, nine exorcisms where I've actually seen demons fly out of people. I have had people speak to me and not their voice, in demonic voices, saying, I hate you, I'm going to kill you. And I thought, ha, ah, I didn't learn how to deal with this in seminary. I know of a situation where there was a young lady who had been struggling with anorexia and bulimia for many, many years. The elders were praying over her, and out of her voice came someone else's voice saying, I am starvation, I own this body. <laughs> when you hear those things, it's a little frightening. And you think to yourself, do we have any power over Satan? And the answer is, Yes, Jesus Christ defeated Satan on the cross, which means, as a Christian, you have nothing to fear. John Piper says it like this, tongue-in-cheek. God uses Satan to sanctify the saints. Why does he say that? Because Romans 28 to 30 says that God uses all things for our good, all things, all things, including sometimes satanic torment and oppression. So, if you encounter spiritual warfare, first of all, there's nothing to fear. Second of all, God is sovereign over Satan, using all things for your good and his glory. Jesus Christ destroyed the power of Satan on the cross which means that you and I as Christians can pray confidently for deliverance from the devil in Jesus' name. Satan is real, but Jesus Christ has defeated him. And we know that someday Satan will be destroyed once and for all, and the cross of Christ ensures this. So what did the cross achieve? The cross achieved victory, but that's not all. The cross also achieved salvation for all types of people. Look with me at verse 31 to 33. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. I want to focus here on verse 32. Jesus says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. As we've already seen many times in John's gospel, that phrase lifted up means that Christ will be lifted up on the cross in just a few hours from this particular point in John's gospel. When he's lifted up on the cross, hanging there, bloody and bruised, absorbing the wrath of God for sinners, he will draw all people to himself. Now, all people here means, in the context of John's gospel, all types of people. John is often referring to the fact that Jesus came, not just for the Jews, but for people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. So on the cross, Jesus will draw to himself not just Jews, but Gentiles, the rich, the poor, the black, the white, the politicians, the white trash, the rednecks the preppies, the Africans, the Germans, the Chinese, the Albanians. Jesus promises 
on the cross to draw all types of people to himself, which should give us confidence to proclaim the gospel. Years ago, two prominent scholars made contrary claims. One was the president of Harvard. The other was the president of Biola, which is a Christian school in Los Angeles. His name is R.A. Torrey. President R.A. Torrey said this, preach any Christ but a crucified Christ, and you will not draw men for long. President Charles Eliot of Harvard University at the same time said this, it's okay for ancient man to believe in a divine atoning Christ, but modern man had outgrown that idea. He then pronounced, let no man fear that reverence and love for Jesus will diminish as time goes on. The pathos and heroism of his life and death will be vastly heightened when he is relieved of all supernatural attributes and power. In other words, Charles Eliot of Harvard is saying, don't worry, as we make Jesus human, as we ignore his atoning death, as we pull all supernatural remnants from him, then the church will grow. He'll become more and more and more popular. And it sure seemed like this was true in the middle of the 20th century. Both these men spoke these words in the 30s or 40s. In the 50s and 60s, it seemed like the words of Charles Eliot were coming true. It seemed like liberal churches that were denying the divinity of Jesus, denying the propitiation-absorbing death of Jesus, were growing. But then, <laughs> they all began to shrink with the rise of modernism, the mainline churches began to shrivel and die because they had a subdivine, non-sin-bearing Jesus. Most have one foot in the grave. In fact, most mainline churches that don't preach that Jesus Christ was divine or that Jesus Christ absorbed the Father's wrath on the cross, most of those churches are selling their buildings and consolidating debt as soon as quickly as possible. Why? A non-sin-bearing Jesus, who is not divine and does not absorb the wrath of the Father, does not draw anyone. And ironically, what's happening now, according to Tim Keller's well-researched book, The Meaning of God, which is a follow-up to the reason for God, right now in the world, the fastest-growing religion is Christianity, specifically evangelicalism. Why? Because back in John 12, Jesus promised that on the cross, he would draw all types of people to himself. And that's happening all around the world. What does this mean for you and I? When you and I preach a watered-down gospel, Take out the divinity of Jesus. Take out the atonement of Jesus. Ignore propitiation. When we do that, the gospel loses its power, its ability to draw sinners to Christ. But when you and I preach the gospel in all of its glory and splendor and emphasize the fact that on the cross, 
Jesus Christ was suffering and dying for sinners, absorbing wrath for sinners. When we preach that message, God promises to draw all types of people to himself. Charles Spurgeon referred to this particular text and said that Jesus Christ is the great universal magnet. He will draw sinners to himself when this gospel is preached. Furthermore, the Greek word for draw is often used for dragging heavy objects, which means that Christ has the power to drag or pull anyone to himself when this message is preached. Now, Jesus says this negatively in John 6, He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can draw anyone to himself when this message is preached, which means that you and I must not water it down. What is our job? Our job is to confidently proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of its bloody glory. Pray and trust Jesus Christ to draw people to himself by the power of the Holy Spirit. Those are the means that God uses. God uses the scripture and the spirit to draw people to himself as this message is proclaimed. And this means, by the way, that when you and I preach this message, some will be drawn and others will be offended and will persecute us and hate us. Both things happen simultaneously. God draws some and others are gonna hate us, just like they hated Jesus. Remember, he's about to be crucified for his teaching. They'll crucify us too if we preach the gospel in all of its splendor and glory. And when we do, some will be drawn, some will be repulsed. Who is that person right now in your life who needs to hear this message? Maybe you're thinking, well, this person is so lost, they're so broken, they're such sinners. Jesus promised that he would draw all types of people to himself from the cross. No one is beyond the grasp of God's grace. He promises to draw people to himself. Now, unfortunately, some in our passage were not being drawn, which brings us to the last point. First, the agony of the cross. Second, the achievement of the cross. Third is the application of the cross. Remember, the cross is Christ's finest hour. Well, who does the cross apply to? Those who believe. Look with me at verse 34. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? These people have some idea that Christ is predicting his death on the cross, but they don't think that the Messiah from the Old Testament is going to die. They haven't read the Old Testament carefully enough. Let's keep reading, verse 35. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. 
while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Verse 36 is the key. Jesus says, while you have the light, while there's still time, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Who receives all the blessings of the cross? Who received all, receives all the benefits of Christ's finest hour? Not those who work really hard and pray and fast and serve and give. No, Jesus says, if you believe in the light, and he is the light of the world, if we simply believe in him, then you and I can experience victory over Satan. And we know that when we preach the gospel, Christ will draw all types of people to himself. Notice that Jesus says, while you have the light. In other words, while there's still time, life is incredibly fragile and short for all of us. Any one of us could be dead and gone this afternoon. But there's still time now. While you have the light, believe in the light. While there's still time, put your hope and confidence in Jesus Christ. And when you do, you'll become sons and daughters of light and experience the victory that Christ procured for you on the cross. What's keeping you from doing that? Do you think that somehow sin will make you happy? That's a lie. Sin only destroys. Do you think you'll have more time? That could be a lie too. You could die this afternoon in a car accident. Hopefully you won't, but life is very fragile. Don't wait. Make a decision now. Put your hope and confidence in Jesus Christ to forgive you, cleanse you, change you, and secure a place for you in heaven. Jesus ends this passage by pleading with the Jews to believe, and he's pleading with you to believe. He invites all of us to come out of the darkness of sin and death and the devil and into his glorious gospel light. Why would you not leave the realm of the devil, the flesh, sin, guilt, and shame, and run to Jesus? He offers abundant life and forgiveness. Well, World War II was Winston Churchill's finest hour. He led the British Empire to a mighty victory over Hitler and the Nazi horde. The cross of Christ was Christ's finest hour. Through the cross, Jesus Christ gained victory over Satan. As a result, you and I can live without fear. You and I can be forgiven. And you and I have authority over Satan. And he did this for all types of people. How will you respond this morning to Christ's finest hour? Let's pray together.